Hello everyone and welcome back to Murder Squared, the true crime podcast. I'm your host, Michaela, and it is so nice to be back with you today. And today is a little special for Murder Squared. If you um, follow me on the Instagram page, I've been kind of building this up all week. Today is the one year anniversary of Murder Squared, which I literally cannot believe I've been doing this for a year. This week, though, has been very challenging in itself to get some content recorded. Um, My family has been in quarantine. This makes day eight that this is being recorded that we have been in quarantine and it's very hard to find a quiet place in your home when no one leaves. So my normal spot where I record is at my desk in my room and my husband is the one that tested positive for COVID. So he has been in our bedroom, kind of locked away, away from the rest of the house, which has made it very hard to record. But luckily he is better. We have both tested negative. Our kids are good. No symptoms or anything like that. They have to be tested um, Friday when this comes out. So yeah, we didn't get to celebrate Thanksgiving with our families, which was very weird. Um, It's the first time in my entire life that I have not eaten Thanksgiving dinner with my parents and my siblings. So yeah, it has been not a great last uh, week and a half-ish for us, but you know, at least we're still here and um, we are getting better and getting over this sickness. While we've been at home, my parents, my siblings, my uh, in-laws have dropped off food. They've come by to do little things for us that we can't do since we can't leave the house. So um, we've had a great support system during all of this for sure. But yeah, this has been not fun. Zero out of 10. Do not recommend. But um, yeah, so today is one year of Murder Squared. And I want to thank you guys for being with me, for tuning in every week, checking out the show, sending me wonderful messages, leaving reviews, interacting on social media. You all are wonderful. I am so glad that you all found my little podcast, however you came across it. And if you've been here from the very beginning, God bless you. because it was a little rough at first. The audio quality is not great um, in those first couple episodes. If you have been here the entire time, and even if you're new and just coming aboard, thank you for checking out this podcast. Thanks for coming back every week. Um, It is amazing me that the numbers keep going up and up and up, and you all are just showing up every week. It is so great. Today, at the end of this episode, I will leave the big announcement, and we're going to do something a little different that we've never done before as far as cases go. So, I've never covered a case in the UK, and this case that I have for you today is pretty good. So, if you're ready, get squared away, and let's talk murder.
So today we're going to London and we are going to be talking about Jan Falowski and his fiance Deborah Pimperton. This couple is just getting engaged. They're starting their wedding planning and right in the height of their engagement, someone else joins their relationship that was not invited. So Debbie had received a call from a woman that was trying to talk to Jan. Now Jan is actually a psychiatrist. Debbie is a financial analyst. So when someone calls her phone looking for Jan, it is a little strange to her, but at the same time, she didn't know the circumstances, so she just gives them Jan's number. Well, after she gives this number, they both start getting calls, and I'm talking an obscene amount of calls and messages. The couple had plans that weekend to go to Dorset Coast, which is something they did often. They had their separate homes So the weekend was their time to get together. So while they're leaving and they're heading to the train station, they begin getting text messages. They both get phone calls. And it's just an obscene amount of calls and messages. And Debbie at first believes this has to be an ex of Jan's. These text messages were very personal. They would say things like, Prepare for a funeral, not a wedding. If you try to have this wedding, all of your guests will die. So all of these messages were sent within 24 hours of the couple getting this innocent little phone call asking for Jan's number. And it wasn't until Jan's mom calls and said that she had given a florist Debbie's address that panic really began to set in. So what had happened is a person had called Jan's mom And they said that Jan had stopped by the floral shop and ordered Debbie flowers. But when he ordered her flowers, he didn't give them Debbie's address. And that they couldn't reach Jan and that this was the number on file. So they talked to Jan's mom. She doesn't know that all these messages and calls and all this craziness is going on. So she just gives them Debbie's address. So now they know that... Obviously, Jan did not order her flowers and that this was all an elaborate ruse to get Debbie's home address. They explained the situation to the police and the police noticed something first off, that the messages that were sent to Jan's phone were more of a loving tone and the messages sent to Debbie's phone were very threatening. They were using a phone number that they got from the internet, so it was an untraceable phone number. They were also using multimedia boxes around London or in pool. They would jump around from phone booth to phone booth. So this was in the year 2000 and there were these things called multimedia boxes for those of you who don't know. I never saw any of them in the States. I remember payphones, but these multimedia boxes You could go in and you could send emails, um, text messages, and phone calls. So this person all day long would bounce around from different phone booths and different multimedia boxes and leave harassing messages. Now, when the caller made phone calls, they didn't say anything. It was very quiet and basically just them breathing, which is creepy enough in itself. 
So since they had absolutely no leads, they didn't know who this person was, they had no way to trace this person, this harassment continued for months. And sometimes these messages would include information about Jan or Debbie, like they would mention things about Debbie going to the dentist in their text messages, or just things that the couple were wearing that day. So they knew that this stalker was escalating quickly. They started suspecting everyone. They had no idea who this could be. They started looking at their coworkers, neighbors, and even family members. While living through this nightmare, Jan and Debbie still decided to move forward with their wedding plans. It was kind of the only lie at the end of the tunnel for them. So this person would send more and more messages the closer they got to their wedding date. And these messages would say things like, You'll be burned alive in your wedding dress. There will be a gunman at your rehearsal. I'll poison the food. All of your guests will die. Basically, anything that this person could say to harass the couple, she said it. So, the couple picked this lovely venue. It was a hotel, and they had to inform the people that were going to be over the venue and helping them with their wedding planning that they had a stalker because she tried to cancel the wedding several times. And even on one occasion, the head chef at the wedding venue was approached by a woman and he later says that this woman has a South African accent and that she was asking about the food. So once he learns that they have a stalker, this is the only profile that the police have to go on and that things were heating up very quickly for the couple. So Debbie had even received a note that was slid under her door, meaning that This person was going by her house at all times of the day during the night. But who was this person? Who would have a vendetta against Debbie and Jan? So the police were able to block all numbers from Debbie and Jan's phones except for selected ones for a little while until the callers started sending emails instead of text messages so those would not be blocked and started using payphones that were not blocked from the caller list. Luckily, once this person started using the multimedia boxes to send her emails with, it made it easier for police to be able to track her. Now, they could only track to the specific box that she was at at the time that she was at, But this was at least a lead. This was at least one step in the right direction into stopping this horrendous nightmare for this couple. But once she starts using these boxes and sending the emails, detectives are able to follow a pattern. They know that she goes to one box every Thursday at around 11 to 2. They know that she goes to another box at four to six, and they're able to track her from the train stations. They know that that is how she's getting from one place to another. So the lead detective and his team begin to stalk the stalker. Police set up at the most used phone booths, which were the ones in Poole in London, and Jan started even sleeping on his boat until he noticed that things had been messed with while he was out. 
like he would come back and the lights would be on. There was one time the gas was turned on. And these were actually separate police stations that were dealing with separate things. So the district where his boat was was dealing with the gas being turned on, obviously for malicious intent. And another police station was dealing with the stalking and the calls. So the stalker was escalating and becoming more and more hostile the closer they came to their wedding day. After much deliberation and discussing, they decide that they are going to have to call the wedding off. And the reason they're going to have to do this is because they're terrified for their guest. What if this person does show up? What if a gunman comes? What if the food is tampered with? What if someone messes with their car as they're leaving and they blow up. There were just so many uncertainties that came with this stalker. They called it off to their very, very close friends and family, but the police had a plan. They told them that they wanted them to pretend as if they were still getting married because they thought that the only way that they were going to catch this person was on the actual wedding day because it seemed that everything led up to this. Everything led up to Jan and Debbie getting married. So they even tell the venue, they say, we're going to proceed as if this wedding is actually happening so we can catch this person. They do everything that they can to make it look like that Debbie and Jan are still getting married to one another. On the wedding day, police increased security. Debbie still was getting ready like she would, just in case the stalker was watching. And there was security placed at all of the phone booths in hope of catching this stalker. All they had to go on was this brief description that the chef had gave. So the hotel and the couple and others worked together to make this wedding look real. The couple waited eagerly for the stalker to show up. This had been eight months now in the making. At 8.30 a.m. that morning, they get a text that's sent from Bournemouth at a multimedia booth. So the fake wedding was in pool at Sultan's Hotel. So while they have police officers at the most commonly used booths, this person ends up going to five booths that are unattended. Everyone wonders if they're being outsmarted because every time a call or a text is sent, they make it to the phone booth or multimedia booth and no one is there. And it's not until this person calls Debbie's parents that they're able to have someone there. So this call's being made and a detective that is near the booth, not at it, races to it. And when he gets there, he sees a woman with dark hair leaving and they arrest her. And her name is Maria Marchese. So the couple felt an immense amount of relief. I mean, eight months of pure torture, eight months of looking over your shoulder, locking your doors, not wondering what this person's next move is, what this person looks like, what their problem is with you, and they finally have this person in custody. But who was she, and why did she have this grudge against them? So, police have to prove that Maria made all these silent calls. They can prove that she was there the time that the call was made to Debbie's parents, but they can't prove that she made every single call. They do a search of her home and they find brochures to the Sultan's Hotel, which was the wedding venue. 
They find the name of the head chef and his number, and also on her agenda was information about Jan, Dr. Flowski's practice. So it turns out her ex-boyfriend was a patient of Jan's at the psychiatric hospital where he worked. And very briefly had she met him, Jan, he didn't even remember meeting her. They had met pretty much in passing and he was treating her boyfriend. So after the arrest, police look at the evidence and unfortunately there is not enough to charge her with harassment. She denies all involvement. She says it wasn't her. She doesn't even know the couple. And all they have is the eyewitness of the chef and the brochure and things in her apartment. But other than that, there's no way to tie her to this couple. So police say at her home in London that all of this evidence they have is circumstantial. So at court, the judge says that they're not going to prosecute. So CPS, which quick interruption here. CPS in the UK is not what CPS is here in the States. CPS here in the States is a resource that is used to check on people's welfare and well-being, while in the UK it stands for the Crown Prosecution Service. So after Marchese is released, there are no charges pressed against her. Guess what? The calls and the text messages start again And the couple is at a complete loss. Where do they go from here? They had seriously only a couple of days of peace knowing that this person is locked up. She's taken away their feeling of safety. She has taken away their wedding day. And now Debbie is so depressed and suffering from PTSD from all the events, she actually leaves London and her relationship with Jan. So, Debbie is pretty much in the clear after this. She doesn't receive any more calls, text messages, or anything. It's like the infatuation has been with Dr. Flowski the entire time, and Debbie was merely in the way. So, Marchese is far from done with him. So, she goes back in to the police, and she wants to report a rape. And she says that in 2002, Jan Flowski raped her. The lead investigator is like, there's no way, there's no way that this is happening. Like, leave this poor guy alone. But he also says that all rape victims are considered to be telling the truth until proven otherwise, which is how it should be. They should be believed first. So they have to go through evidence and she tells them, you know what, actually, I have a pair of underwear that I was wearing that day. And then she goes to tell them of the story of this alleged rape. And she tells them that she was at his office one day and that he drugged her and then took her back to her apartment. And she keeps having flashbacks of him on top of her and her telling him to stop. And she goes on to tell them this. Because of these allegations, they arrest Dr. Flaski. They order a no-contact order between him and his colleagues and patients. They take his passport, and he's pretty much at her mercy now. So, when they put the underwear in for DNA testing, they find that Jan's DNA is on the underwear. They also find that Maria Marchese's DNA is on the underwear, but there's a third person's DNA that they are unable to match. So now they're wondering, well, 
who else's DNA would be in her undergarments. The lead investigator has this DNA in front of him, but still cannot believe this story. From her story, she says that she was drugged in his office, and this means that she would have had been taken down three flights of stairs, put into a car, and then brought upstairs to her apartment for the sexual assault to occur. And Jan could not believe he was being charged with this. He couldn't believe it was even being taken seriously. But after all, they have his DNA in her underwear. What else were they supposed to do or think? So they think the entire time that she has been obsessed with him is because she wants revenge for this sexual assault. So he has lost his job, lost his passport, his fiance has left him, and she's even went to the media about this assault and telling them about all of the things that he supposedly has done to her. So in the midst of all of this, actually, Jan has a girlfriend. After Debbie left, he started dating this woman named Beth, Beth Ansel. So she says that she thinks that Jan is the victim, that there isn't any way that this has happened, and that it's just crazy. Now keep in mind, this alleged rape happened two years before she ever even started dating him. So they want to see what the new girlfriend's DNA looks like in comparison with that third sample that was found in Maria's underwear. They take a sample from her, but it takes a little while for these things to come back. They find out three days before the case was to go to trial that that third DNA sample was, in fact, Beth's. This is what they conclude, is that Maria Marchese was stalking Jan and got into his garbage and got out a condom that Jan and Beth had previously used and kept it to frame him for rape. This was the only thing that made any sense because the DNA that's found in the underwear is Beth and Jan and Maria's. Well, she says this happened two years before in 2002. So if this happened in 2002, then why would Beth's DNA be on it? They didn't even know each other then. They weren't dating. He was with Debbie Pepperton. So CPS drops the rape charge against Dr. Flawski. And the main detective on this case says that Jan was absolutely let down by their justice system. He says allegations such as this lives with you, even though he has been cleared from all these allegations that there is still an arrest and a rape that he has been accused of. And that is a quote from the lead detective Malcolm Davies. So, Maria has terrorized him for two years, and after the charges on Dr. Flawowski are dropped, Maria began to stalk the prosecutor that dropped the rape case. She is now the fourth person that this woman has stalked. So, they found out that there was a victim that she has harassed and stalked before she ever even started this whole vendetta against Jan and Debbie. So, the prosecutor had to up her security. She had to have all of her phone calls be taken by an operator. And at this point, Marchese has escaped all charges. She's just out there freely stalking people. 
but the prosecutor decides to take her to trial. They were wondering if, honestly, Maria Marchese would even pass her psych valve, but they are able to charge her with harassment and deadly intent, and they sentence her to nine years in prison. So, she's actually was supposed to be up for parole in 2012. Now, I have looked, and I have looked, and I cannot find if Maria Marchese was released on parole or if she is still in prison. I have no idea. I was able to see that um, Debbie Pemberton actually remarried, and her name is Debbie Lindstrom now. She has had another scandal in her life. This poor woman has been completely victimized by everyone around her. Unfortunately, she, um, I won't go into the scandal necessarily, but it's crazy as well. So, I have no idea where this case really wraps up, which I think makes it all the more creepier that there is a stalker either out on the loose or in prison. We may never know. So, UK listeners, look out. All right, you guys, thank you for joining me today. That case is wild, and when I heard it, I was like, that one is going on the podcast for sure. It is actually called The UK's Worst Stalker, so um, I agree with that fullheartedly. That is insane and so terrible. There were points in the documentary that I watched where um, Debbie was saying that she considered committing suicide a few times because it was so awful. But um, I also today didn't really want to cover a murder case, which is a little unusual for this podcast considering murder is in the name of it. But anyways, the big announcement that I have been waiting to share with you is I have finally, finally, you guys, set up Patreon. I am so excited for it. Um, I put a little poll out there with you guys and asked you all who would join, and there was a really good response, which I was honestly a little shocked about. So, there are going to be two tiers to um, joining Patreon. There will be a $3 level, where each month you will get a creepypasta episode. You may get um, some videos, some little extra content here and there. Or you can join at the $5 level and you will get the creepypasta episode. And you will also be getting a true crime case. And there is already a creepypasta episode and a true crime case over there. The case that is over there is so insane. (laughs) It is, oh my gosh, it's It's a lot, and I have been saving that one for a while, and I thought, you know what? I am putting that one on Patreon. Also, when you sign up, you will be getting a card from me with some goodies. So, I am really happy about this. I have dedicated a year to this podcast, and now I'm ready to dedicate another year to Patreon. If you are wanting to sign up for Patreon, you can go to the show notes. Um, Most of the time, I know on Apple and Spotify... You just scroll up and there will be a link that says Patreon and it'll take you right to it. If you don't um, necessarily have the funds, I know this is right before Christmas, for um, starting Patreon, but you want to help the podcast out, 
you can do a little single donation over there or you can just leave me a review. If you're like, Michaela, I don't have an Apple device. I can't leave you a review. That's okay. You can go on Amazon and do that or you can go on Good Pods or do that or just tell a friend. Share me on your social media. Um, I feel like I've gotten this podcast thing down a little bit. <laughs> so um, this year I'm really going to be working on marketing the podcast more and trying to get some new listeners. I'm hoping maybe I can go be a guest on some other podcasts, maybe have some more guests on this one, maybe do some trailer swaps with some other podcasts. I don't really know. I'm just wanting to grow a little more this year. So with that being said, I am very happy for my listeners that I have now. You all are amazing. Um, I've I'm sure I've said this before, I never thought that people would actually listen to this podcast and it continues to amaze me that people just keep listening (laughs) and we keep having new listeners that join us and that you all are just always present. It is amazing. So with that being said, if you are wanting to join Patreon, go ahead and click that link go give the content over there a listen and if you want to wait to join patreon later that is okay too just like review subscribe all that good stuff if you can and as always guys stay square i'll see you next murder with lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.